You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. What's up? You're looking good. I just realized that people are probably watching online going, what's going on? I'm looking at a blank screen. I was just talking to Kevin Colvin. He's home from the hospital. He's home. Uh, and he's watching, so let's give a big, Kevin, love you. Lord, continue to touch and heal our brother. And uh, just give Diane just such strength and hope, Noah. Also, our interns as they're traveling now, flying back to Alabama. Spend 10 days back there to bless another church, Pastor Joel Reddy and their leadership. Man, just use them, Lord. Use them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We were praying for these um, young adults. I've got to stop calling them kids. You're looking at some of them, they're shaving now. You've got to stop calling them kids. But, but uh, I'm just so proud of them. You know, they're, they're, there's, I don't know, how many interns are there, Lord? Do you remember? Fifteen. And, uh, you know, we're working them hard, and they're learning a lot. And Pastor Jay, is, he's he's merciless in the sense of the workload, you know, and we got back from the lake and he, he called me up uh, and he's like, hey, some of these kids, they, they thought that they would have time off in between getting back from the lake and serving there and going to Alabama. And he goes, I just wanted them to know that ministry never stops. And how, how else do you teach them that? You just, and I go, well, you're leading. That means you're, you're not going to stop either. So just stop. I'm going to take the rest of the day off. You go and do what you got to do. So, but um, anyway, great group of kids. Had a good uh, heart-to-heart time of prayer with them as they left today. So keep them in your prayers. Turn your Bibles over to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 12. And we're going to look at a, a parable of a man that owned a vineyard. And in the parable, we're going to see the heart of God. We're going to see the kindness of God. The patience of God, the love of God, the pursuit of God towards people who he calls his own, the nation of Israel, and we'll even bring application, if time allows, to the church, even when they are rejecting him, rejecting his message. And so... You that like to go visual and begin to think about what this looks like when we step into the sandals of the disciples, it's the final week. The final week that leads up to Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. In that final week, he's going to be challenged, and he'll be challenged by the establishment. I've been using that word to describe the leaders of Judaism the institution of Judaism and all of the legality that they imposed upon the people. The institution, the leaders, will challenge him. They've been challenging him for three and a half years. But they have seen miracle after miracle. They have seen him say things that would lead them to say and others to say, this this guy talks like no other man, no other teacher. He speaks with such authority. These leaders would have several, on several occasions, heard Jesus make the clear claims that he is, he is God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world. But over and over and over and over, they just rejected him. And so here on this final week, if you were to boil down the conversations that he had with them, the times they opposed him, they challenged his theology, they challenged his integrity, and they challenged his authority. And so, go to the beginning of that week, Monday, Tuesday-ish, in your mind. He's with the disciples. And... Go into the temple area, not the temple itself. The temple area would include a 40-acre parcel. 
The temple itself, some 45 feet long, about 15, and then another, yeah, about 45 feet long, and, and, and maybe about half that width. And just the temple area, though, a massive structure. And Herod the Great had put a lot of time and a lot of engineering and a lot of building into what temple area Jesus would have walked on and through when he was living on the earth. Put yourself as one of those people. You're staying in a massive courtyard, a courtyard that's possibly five, maybe several acres wide. And as you're standing in the middle of this, it's early in the morning, and, and picture this one colonnade, a massive colonnade. It's probably about four columns deep and dozens and dozens and dozens of col columns long. And then put, put a nice roof over it. And picture people walking through that like a marketplace. Picture steps along the length of this that would lead up to maybe a four-foot elevation. Then picture Jesus walking through. Picture hundreds of people. Dust in the air. And it's in this particular setting where the religious leaders are, are, are challenging him. And part of what Jesus is trying to do, I believe, is win over their hearts. Another thing he's trying to do is teach. Teach the disciples what's wrong. Teach them what not to be. Teach them what they are not to be towards the people. And as Jesus be walking through that colonnade, have him stop. You stop with him. He looks out over some of these religious leaders and he says these words. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. He dug a place for the wine vat. He built the tower and he leased it to vine dressers and he went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. But they took that servant. They beat him. And they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And at him, they threw stones. They wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved. He also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son, surely. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir, the heir of the landowner. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture, looking into the eyes of these religious leaders? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And they, those religious leaders, they, they sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the multitude, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him, and they went on his way. This parable does a few things. It displays God's heart for the nation of Israel, the patience of God towards Israel, the hope that God has for Israel. God's hope for Israel is like the hope of a man who built a vineyard and, and waited expectantly for its produce. This is a story that 
every Jew, let alone for sure these religious leaders, would have been able to identify with. Man comes along, plants, plants a vineyard. He puts a wall around it. He, he digs a pit for the wine press. He builds a watchtower. Then he, he, he rented the, the vineyard, which was very customary in those days, to farmers who would want to work his vineyard, and then he goes away on a journey. Most Jews, again, especially these religious leaders, knew that the vineyard was a national symbol for the nation of Israel. The very temple which they would have been able to look up and stare at, it supported a, a richly carved grapevine about 100 feet high, sculptured around the door which led from the porch into the holy place. The branches, the, the vines, the leaves, all gold, solid gold. The fruit hanging from it was real, actual, costly jewels. Herod first placed that there. And then rich and patriotic Jews, as they would come and visit the temple, they would even add to that. In addition, the Maccabean coins bore symbols on them. And many of the years, the symbols were just that. They were a bunch of grapes or a grape leaf. So the, the vine and the vineyard held a very sacred meaning in the eyes of the Jews. Jesus, as he begins to talk, we might read this and go, wow, pretty direct words. But more than just direct words, they're biblical. He is quoting from a passage in Isaiah, which is actually called the Song of the Vineyard. It's in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. We'll read a bit more about that or read a bit from that in just a minute. It's a song about Israel. These guys knew that. They can't miss the application. And there will be rich application as well for you and I as the church. I'll, we'll get to that. I don't want you to miss the application. They understood that the landowner or the owner, the Lord, had taken great pains to make the vineyard healthy and productive. And Jesus points out four things that God did. Number one, he planted a vineyard. So one of the things we want to see here is, is at the top of the list, if you're taking notes, is like we're just seeing the diligence of God to do something here. He planted a vineyard. That means in that culture, man, that was a lot of work. You had to clear the land. You had to dig up the stones. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 2, it says that he planted it with the choicest of vines. And so the picture is this, this landowner creates like the most beautiful, high-quality vineyard from which one should expect beautiful, high-quality fruit. He set a hedge around it. It would have been a wall. He did that to keep out anything that would come in and harm it. Anything that would come in and ravage it. To keep out intruders that would like to come in and plunder it. Remember again, this is God building something. This is God building something that should produce something of great value. And this is God building protection into this. He also set a place for the wine vat. This is talking about the place, the, the pit that they would use for the wine press. Usually they would hew this out of some area on the mountain or by the side of a mountain that had solid rock. They would form two vats. In one side of the vat they would put the grapes, which they would walk on, they would smash. And then the other vat, it would, of course, they would have a, a channel and it would overflow the juice from the grapes into that vat. Then he built a tower, a place of shelter, a place of storage. But again, it would be a, a vantage point that people could stand and they could observe and protect the vineyard. This is what God had done with the vineyard, listen, the nation of Israel. We might say, when did all of this take place? 
Well, it started, as we know, God talking to a man by the name of Abraham and telling him to get out of his land to leave Ur. He left that evil place to become the father of a chosen people, which was to be a blessing to the whole world. Then Moses, of course, would have a role as he would be raised up to deliver the people from bondage that they would find themselves in Egypt for over 400 years. And then the promise to Moses is that he would lead them out of Egypt and into this beautiful land that was flowing with milk and honey. The land that God would provide everything that this group of people would need in order to be amazingly fruitful people. God delivered them. God would give them the law. Moses, of course, because he misrepresented God by striking the rock twice, would not be able to take the people in. The next person behind him was Joshua. Joshua would be the one that God would use to lead the people into the land of Canaan. This all was God's doing. There's a great psalm. Psalm 44, 2 and 3 says, You drove out the nations with your hand. But then you planted, you afflicted the peoples and cast them out. They did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their arm save them, but it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance because you favored them. Exodus 15, 17 says, You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for, you are for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Then we read that, that song, the song of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Listen to this. This is the passage that Jesus is, is referring to or quoting from. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved as a vineyard. On a very fruitful hill, he dug it up and cleared out its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a winepress in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done to it. Another good passage that, that speaks to this is Psalm 80, verses 8 through 15. There again, you have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The, the hills were covered with its shadow, the mighty cedars with its bows. And it, and it just goes on to talk about how God planted this amazing group of people as his own, as a vineyard. God had transplanted them, you might say, out of Egypt and planted them then in Canaan. He had uprooted the nations and he had planted his people in that land. And in that passage in Psalm 80, it would go on to say, as long as the people, you know, would, would obey the Lord, in verse 9, the vine would grow and it would cover more and more of the land. And that's why he talks about the boundaries of the nation. They reached all the way to the hills to the south, to the mighty cedars of Lebanon, all the way up to the north, all the way down to the Mediterranean Sea, the west to the Euphrates, on, and, and to the east and beyond. God had amazing plans for these people. Plans that would involve them evolving and developing and being a very, very fruitful people that would bless all nations. Because it was God's doing, God expected great things to come from his spiritual vineyard. You know these religious leaders that Jesus was talking to knew this? And they knew what happened when their forefathers disobeyed the Lord. And they knew that 
Through their disobedience, they produced worthless fruit and, and felt the chastening hand of the Lord. They knew that at time and time again, God had you know, lifted or withdrew his protection and permitted the enemy to enter the land and to, to just ruin the vineyard. But the main idea there was that Israel is God's own people. It's his vine. He planted them. He alone could grow them and, and mature them. He alone could protect them. He alone could deliver them. That's what Jesus wanted them to see. But now he says at vintage time. At vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit from the, 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 his own vineyard. In these lease agreements between a landowner and the farmers that he would lease, you know, the land to his land to, it was very common for them to get a cut of the produce. Sometimes between a third and maybe even all the way up to a half. That was just kind of how it, how it worked. Now remember, this is a high-quality operation. The idea is that they were giving everything they needed in order to be successful. So expectations were understandably being just be, would be very high. But Jesus says when the landowner sent one of his servants to go get some of the, the, the grapes that had now come to harvest. He says no fruit was given. Instead, in verse 3, the vine dressers, they took the servant of the landowner and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4, the landowner sends another servant. There's no retaliation. Just sends another servant. But this time they threw stones at him. They wounded him in the head. They sent him away, shamefully treated. Next, the landowner sends another servant. No retaliation. Just sends another servant. But this time they kill him. And notice what it says. And many others. He kept sending servants to whom they continued to beat and others they killed. This shows us a couple of things. It shows us, I would just say, the madness of the world when it comes to rejecting God. God had been so gracious and very merciful in planting these people in the promised land from Abraham down through Moses on into Joshua. He had firmly planted them and given them everything that they could possibly need to develop and 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 form into a fruitful nation. Later on in their history, they would get off track from time to time. In a further display of God's kindness and God's mercy, he would send prophets to redirect them. But sadly, the leadership of Israel would miss what God was doing and they would treat those prophets just as Jesus pictured here in the parable. From rejecting to sending them away empty-handed, to beating them and wounding them, and even murdering them. You look at the life of Elijah, an amazing man that God did miraculous things through. But eventually, Elijah would be driven away into the wilderness by the monarchy. You look at Isaiah, a prophet that lived 700 years before Christ. His name means Yahweh, or the Lord is my salvation. He prophesied during the reign of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. Forty years of faithful ministry. Some of the prophecies dealt with the conditions of his day. Some of them spoke of the coming Messiah. Some see Isaiah as one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. But we read about his latter days, and in there, there's a, a non-biblical text um, the Babylonian Talmud. And it reports that Isaiah was, was condemned to death by King Manasseh. And it says that he hid in a tree, this, this, this hollowed-out tree. And as they found Isaiah hiding in that hollowed-out tree, 
They cut the tree in half with him in it. It was sawn in two. We look at Zechariah, another great prophet that God had sent to motivate the inhabitants of Jerusalem to complete the construction of the temple. We know Zechariah 4.6, not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah, a man, a great prophet. Many prophecies referring to Jesus' first and second coming. But it tells, tells us as you go through, you know, Second Chronicles, you know, especially talks about Zechariah, that they just completely became idolatrous. They just fell into idolatry and they carved all these wooden images and, and the wrath of God came upon them. And so it says in 2 Chronicles 24, 20 and 21, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoadiah, the priest who stood above the people and said, thus says the God, why do you transgress and, and commit all of this against the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? You've shaken the Lord your God. He's forsaken you. So, verse 21, they conspire against Zechariah, and at the commandment of the king, they stone him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Zechariah was stoned to death near the altar. We move forward into the New Testament. John the Baptist, you know, he, he was like the first prophet to really speak up. In, 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 in a few hundred years. And, and what was his message? He was the forerunner of Christ. He was like, prepare the way. Prepare your hearts. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king's about to come. Godly man. Called people to repentance. Was baptizing people. They were converting. They are putting their faith in the king that was to come. John the Baptist he uh, had a few harsh words as well. Harsh words to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He called them brood of vipers. And who warned you guys, you know, to flee the coming wrath and all of that. And, and then he also had some words with, with Herod. He warned Herod Antipas and his wife Herodias. Herodias was the wife of his half-brother Herod Philip, but Herod seduced her and pursued her and persuaded her to leave her husband Philip and marry him. John the Baptist heard about that. And he's like, that, that ain't cool. It, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And that would lead to John the Baptist losing his head. These are people that stood up for God boldly proclaimed the word of God, the plan of God, the way of God, all the way from the early days of the early prophets, all the way to the days of Christ. Madness we see in a world that begins to reject God. But at the same time you see the madness of the world, you see the kindness of God. Look at how patient God was throughout history with the nation of Israel. All of this, again, was done because Israel's leaders wanted the vineyard's fruits for themselves. But Jesus is not done. From rejecting and beating and wounding and murdering the master's servants, he points out that the master still had a son. Verse 6, still having one son, his beloved he sent him to them saying, surely, surely they will respect my son. Jesus moves at this point. He hasn't yet been put to death by these guys. So he's moving from a focus on history, their historical failure. And now he moves into the realm of prophecy. He's already claimed several times to his disciples and to others, how he would die and by whose hands he would die, that he would be rejected, that he would be crucified. But now he's looking at these guys and he's like, 
telling them what they are about to do with him. He's, he's basically describing their personal role as it will relate to putting him on the cross in just a few days. So he moves from history to prophecy. He's prophesying. The Son of God is looking them in the eye and openly and publicly and passionately and patiently helping them see the failure of their fathers before them. Maybe just believing someone's going to connect the dots and bringing that into reality, into this very day, looking them in the eye and saying, guys, this is speaking of me and what you're about to do to me. Verse 7 and 8, but the vine dressers, Jesus says, they just said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. The inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. He unmasks their plan. The parable again reveals so much. Once again, the kindness of God, this time in the act of sending his only begotten son. Imagine the, the, just the patience of God, the heart of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. Uh, time and time again, servant after servant after servant after servant, decade after decade after decade, century after century, year after year, rejection. And now, his son, again revealing the patience of God, even with such a, a horrific history of rejecting his servants, the heart of God, maybe they just won't reject my son, they'll respect him. It also reveals the extent of Jesus' obedience to the Father the extent of his love for us. Jesus knew the history. He knew what lane he was in. He knew what people he was dealing with. But he came, nonetheless took on flesh to dwell among us in order that he might die for us. And here he is, talking just days before the cross, looking into the eyes of the ones that are going to trump up fake charges against him. They're going to counsel. They're going to gather. And they're going to conclude that he needs to die. He knows all of that. They're going to go to Rome. They get basically Rome on their side. They're going to put him to death. But out of obedience to the Father and out of love for us, he moves Moves day after day, step after step towards the cross. This reveals also just the darkness of the heart of these religious leaders in regard to the Father. It shows that they have absolutely no fear of Him, they have no interest in being part of His plan of redemption, either as promoters or as beneficiaries. And saying among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him, it, it, it's, it's, it's a picture of a group who like thought the master almost didn't exist. He was dead to them. There was no fear absolutely at all towards him. Therefore, if they, they killed the son, that was the idea. They would command the property. They, they wanted the proceeds of the vineyard for themselves. They wanted to be the landowner. What does that mean? They wanted to be God. Just three days from, you know, this, just a few days from this, they're going to do it. They're going to arrange for his death 
outside the city, symbolically outside the vineyard. This was the desire of their hearts, that the vineyard would be theirs alone. Now let's bring this home. Sadly, we see people today rejecting God in our world today. They want to drive away the messengers of God just like they drove away Elijah. They want to tear up the messengers of God, people, Christians like us, just like they did with Isaiah. They don't want to hear us call them to their need to repent, just like John the Baptist. They want us to be silenced, just like John the Baptist was. And God sees this. He knew this would be the case when he sent his son to die on the cross for the entire world, down through history, even to this present day. God responds to rejection with patience and love. He continues to raise up voices to share the good news of his son. Even in the face of so much blatant rejection today. Charles Haddon Spurgeon has a quote that I put here because it fits. Speaking of Jesus. If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing for your soul. If you kill him, he dies to redeem you. If you bury him, he rises again to bring you resurrection and transformation. Amen. What a quote. What then will the owner of the vineyard do, verse 9? Asked Jesus. And he gives the answer. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. If you were to look at at when Jesus said this, and, and you just move forward just maybe three decades, three and a half, Four. In 70 AD, Rome is going to lay siege on the city of Jerusalem. A million Jews are just going to be killed. They're going to be scattered. We call it the, the, the diaspora. These religious leaders who wanted it could never have it. It was not theirs to have. And so the the landowner, as he will come and kill the tenants, he will allow this to happen and give the vineyard to others. And so the others, you think about this, you know, many people think that Jesus is talking about the church age and the, the fullness of the Gentiles. It's talking about the church era. It's a season that... Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11 where because of Israel's unfruitfulness and everything Jesus just talked about here, they're they're pictured there as an olive tree. He cuts them down. Now because God's a merciful God, they're still a stump. If you and I were God, we would have just reached over in the analogy and uprooted the tree and that would have been it. Nomas Israel. But God has this amazing redemptive plan that is just so filled with his grace and so filled with his mercy for his people. If you and I were God, we would have been done right about, I don't know, with Adam and Eve. That would have been it. It is just not going to work out. It was a joke. But look at the patience of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. And in Romans chapter 11, he talks about this olive tree, and he's like, okay, man, I'm going to cut them down. There's blindness in part. And the idea is that they're going to be blind for a season. 
then I'm going to graft in to that stump a wild olive branch. If you're a, a, a non-Jew here, raise your hand, okay? If you're a Jew, you keep your hand down. So keep your hand up. Okay, I know. It's a little obnoxious when Lance does this, but tough. These are wild. Hold them both up. This is like second grade stuff. Okay, we're wild olive branches. Lee's got his hands down because he's Jewish, okay? But we, we, are, we are grafted. You can put your hands down now. That means you're grafted in. Put them like this. You're grafted in. All right, there you go. We, we are grafted in. We're grafted into God. We are His chosen people uniquely as the church, just as the nation of Israel was His chosen people uniquely through the line of Abraham. Equally special. And there's a time. It's the fullness of the Gentiles. And most scholars believe that there's the time of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles. That's a whole other Bible study. But this is talking about the, the church age. And so there's a time, there's a day. I don't know when it is. I, don't, I always like to say it this way, maybe tonight, where there's like a number of Gentiles that are going to be grafted in. When that last Gentile is grafted, saved, I think we're going to hear a trumpet. Da, 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 you know, and it, it, Much louder and much more cool than my trumpet. And then that's going to that's be a different era now. Now we're going to move into the tribulation period. And some you know, carry the, the, the time of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles forward into that because Gentiles get saved during the seven-year tribulation and whatnot. But irregardless of the time limit, that's the picture. He's going to give the vineyard to others. Once again, as you look at Romans chapter 11, you see the love and the patience and the grace and the mercy of God because he's not done with Israel. Even though they reject his son and put him on a cross, he's like, ah, I'm, 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 yeah, some of you guys are going to, you're going to, this is going to cost you. <laughs> but the nation as a whole, God will never turn his back on them. Isn't that something? He will never turn his back on those who will eventually receive him. We take our tours through Israel. We like to talk a lot about this. And, you know, we, we go to the city of, of, of Petra. And we know at, at the second coming, Jesus will make a few pit stops. And Petra will be one of those pit stops. And Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talks about during the tribulation period, halfway through, the, the, the nation of Israel is going to wake up and realize that the one they thought was their Messiah was the Antichrist, and he's going to say, flee, get, get out of Dodge. And they will go to the, the hills, to the rock-fortified city of, of Petra, and there he will feed them and protect them and love on them. And, and, and as I develop my timeline of all of that in Israel, uh, when we get there, I always talk about his first pit stop will be in Megiddo, and then he, he will, the battle of Armageddon, and then from there, this is following the second coming, of course, he will, he will go to Petra, and then he'll go to the Mount of Olives. Those are the three big, the big stops. But all of that, you know, he's just a merciful God. Verse 10, have you not even read the scripture? He says to these guys, this would be a, you know, like you, you looking at your history teacher and just looking him in the face and go, have you never read history? This is a very bold statement. Have you not even read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the, the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in his eyes. Some of you might be going, this is a familiar passage. Yeah, when we're in our Acts 4 studies on Sunday morning, and Peter and John were arrested, brought into the temple and whatnot. Through that whole process, he was 
quoting this same scripture to the Jewish people, wanting them to understand. It's a, Psalm 118. It's a classic right out of their Messianic Psalm. The Psalm, you know, it's, it's just a great Psalm. By applying this to himself, Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. The picture depicts one of the building stones gathered from Solomon's temple and it was rejected in the construction of the sanctuary. But then it became the keystone of the entrance. And Jesus, when he says that, is he's saying, you know, I'm the keystone and the eternal and the spiritual temple of God. He went from rejection to the highest exaltation by way of a cross. How graphic saying these words as he stood by the temple. Luke adds in this account, Luke's account of this, Jesus saying, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. You either fall on him, submit to him in brokenness is the idea, or you reject him and he will come down on you and you'll be ground to powder. That's the idea. That's the picture. As Jesus' final words echo through Solomon's porch, the religious leaders would need to Respond. Their, their history was undeniable. But the way Jesus presented it through this parable, it, it, just, it just brought out the kindness of God, the patience of God, the love of God. And in his final statement, the judgment of God. Well, verse 12 again, then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So I, I, in my notes, I just how sad. The leaders of Israel stood at the, the pinnacle of the temple next to a golden vine that would symbolize Israel as a vineyard. Before them stood the Son of God, the, the, the keystone to the entire structure, the entrance way. He is the way into spiritual life and eternal life. The choice was very, very dramatic, to say the least. And I think the choice, the choice of in, in accepting or rejecting Jesus today whenever you share the gospel, I believe it's also just very dramatic as are the consequences. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness and his forbearance and his longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads us to repentance? Amen. So the vine dressers were the spiritual leadership of Israel, the ones that God had entrusted with all of the resources necessary to produce an amazing vineyard that would produce amazing quality crops. Much was expected from them. With all those advantages, God expected them to develop, again, a fruitful people, a spiritually productive nation. A nation that would be alive to God. A nation that was abounding in spiritual fruit and spiritual life. Don't miss this. He took that same privilege that they rejected and handed it to you and handed it to me. That's the application. And as Christians, we farm a far richer vineyard than that of ancient Israel. We have resources. The complete word of God. We have all the testimonies of the living 
examples of all the patriarchs and all the countless believers from the Old Testament until today. Example after example of spiritual lives that have produced incredible fruit. We have the supreme example, Jesus. The cross, the resurrection, salvation, the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. We have the witness of Christ in us. We have this ability to bear fruit, spiritual fruit. It's interesting. We have, you know, the, the, these vineyard pictures and, and, and the, the landowner, God pictured as the landowner in all of what we study today. And then we get into John chapter 15 and we have this other parable, this other picture that Jesus talks about where he himself is the vineyard. He's the vine. You're like, let me get my mind wrapped around all of that. And that really speaks to, now time doesn't permit us to break all that down. Maybe go home and read that. But that really speaks into the privilege now of what he's entrusted to us. What is it that he wants to produce through us? As we abide in him, as a, as a, as a you got the vine and the branch. The branch is connected and it abides in him. We are to produce fruit. Apart from him, we can produce nothing. Any more than, you know, you go to any limb on any fruit tree that you have and you cut that limb off. It, that's it. It is not going to produce and it's just going to instantly die. Recently, I had a... a, a tree guy over my house and I wanted to transplant a, a dwarf fruit tree. I, I just kind of like this tree. It's kind of a cool spot, but it was in the way of something. And I, I asked him, I said, now, if we transplant that fruit tree from one area to another, will it live? You know what he said to me? He goes, I'm not God. <laughs> and I said, well, I knew that before I asked you the question. And this is what he said. No. He says, in all my years, that tree, it's an orange tree, an interesting orange tree, that, that tree will only grow and develop where it was first planted. And I said, let's just give it a shot. I have one dead tree in my yard right now. Little dwarf, dead dwarf. Orange tree. Lee's even amen and the dead things around here. That's good. You didn't listen to him. I didn't listen to him. <laughs> Should listen to him. You know, we're living at a time, if I can just play with this analogy for a little bit, where there are times and seasons where God, like the nation of Israel, he's like, this is where you're supposed to be. You go through the book of Joshua, and that was, that was it. Joshua, you are the one, and these are the people. And they would eventually, after you know, the wandering and all that, they would, they would, he would lead them in. And when you go through the book of Joshua, you begin to realize that in the, in the very heart of that land, that was the center of God's will. They, they had a really hard time seeing past their own circumstances. They had to, to cross a Jordan River that was overflowing. It was springtime, and it was just like gushing, and they, they freaked out just as much as their forefathers did at the banks of the Red Sea. But God miraculously led them in. All the way through the Old Testament, you see that God made it very clear. You're not going anywhere. I'm taking you somewhere. I'm leading you follow. You can't do this on your own. So God supernaturally blocked up the headwaters of the Jordan, just like he supernaturally divided the Red Sea. And here comes the priest, here comes the ark, and here comes the people. They're laying 12 stones in the middle of the dry Jordan River and then on the other side so they'd have stones of remembrance to bring back their kids and go, look, God let us in. This is his land. Would not be here without him. 
But then they would be there, and that becomes a picture of being in the center of God's will. And, and, and there, were, there, were, there were battles to be fought. The first place that they would camp at would be Gilgal. And, and, and it's, there's all kinds of cool things that they would do there, but one of the first things that they would do there is that for 40 years they, they hadn't circumcised their men, which was a sign of the covenant, but was also a picture of cutting away the flesh. And they were nothing but fleshy people for 40 years in the wilderness, wandering, complaining and murmuring and whatnot. And it was a giant, giant funeral march, but the younger ones came in, and the first thing that they would do symbolically is say, we're done with our flesh. And then they hadn't, they hadn't observed the Passover, so they would observe the Passover. And there was this, this getting back into recognizing God and bringing God into the equation. We are now where you want us. We are now in the center of your will. You, you did transplant us from Egypt to Canaan. They didn't transplant themselves. And at the center of his will was a plan bigger than them. If you back up where we're at today and you just take kind of a, wow, what was it he was really trying to do with them in that land? He was just putting the initial people there that would be the first people of the people that would bring birth to the Messiah. There's a a Hebrew word, a derivative of the Hebrew word that identifies the land as Canaan, and it's the word Nabal. It's, it's N-A-B-A-L. And we, we, we extract from that a very interesting word called navel. It speaks of our belly button. It speaks of a place of birth. It speaks of a place where God would be birthing spiritual life and eternal life. We are in a season like we've never been. I know I've been raised in the church, but in my adult life ministering, where people are transplanted. They are, we, I call it the great shuffle. <laughs> and, and there are a lot of people that are kind of scratching their head and, and, and trying to find out where do I want to lay down roots? You can do that. You live in a country. You just celebrated freedom. You could pick and choose what church you go to. You could pick and church, choose what neighborhood you live in. You could pick and choose what state you live in. You can pick and choose pretty much anything these days and pursue that and place yourself where you will. You can do that. But as a Christian, that's not what we do. As a Christian, we pursue the landowner. The one who knows where to place us. Remember, he grafted us into something. And remember, just as God gave these people who he placed and planted where he wanted them, every resource they would need to be successful. He does that with us. One of the most frustrated Christians on the planet is the Christian that's out of God's will. Trying to be something or do something outside of God's will, whatever that means. There's never a good time to be out of God's will. Never. Never. <laughs> and so I, I just, it, it, it's such, it's such a tender place in my heart when I talk about this, and I mean this. Because I know there's so much pulling at Christians today. And I sympathize with that. My heart is heavy for all that is pulling at the graft in branches, olive branches, that make up the body of Christ. I just think it's so important, and this is not a pitch to graft into Calvary La Habra. This is not a pitch for that. This is a, this is a pitch. This is a plea to graft into the center of God's will for your life. Because there's where he's going to just 
produce everything through all of the resources, his, his Holy Spirit, his word, to where, you know, you are grafted in. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. What happens when we're not apart from him and we're abiding in him? Well, he's going to produce an amazing amount of spiritual fruit through your life. He just will. And I long to, to see that in your life. I, I, I hope you long to see that in my life. And, and I, I long to lock arms with more and more people that are like, yeah, that's what it's about. Let's get into the center of God's will. And understand, as, as much as the father, the landowner, had the rightful expectation to expect the most amazing vineyard with the most amazing crop, with the most amazing fruit, and what does the fruit do? It's for the benefit of others. He had the, the, the right to have the highest of expectation because he planted it. And all the resources are from him. The Father would look at us today as the church. That same, like crazy expectation, like, like giddy expectation, man. I have high hopes for you. And put your name there. I have amazing expectation when I look at you because of who I am and because of where I planted you and because of the resources that I have entrusted to you and infused in you and because you're abiding in my son. We should look at the nation of Israel historically and go, there's no excuse. They should have been the most amazing, spiritual, alive to God, just impacting every nation that they came in contact for him, people that ever walked on the face of the planet. But they didn't. Why? I'll answer it. They made it about themselves and not about him. That's, that's, what, that's what Jesus just indicted them on. And the church today, the church today, you, you might even say is very similar in the, the makeup of what we see Jesus describing the nation of Israel to be. There's, there's those indeed that were there that had made it about him. The disciples did. There were many that followed him. Many that had their lives transformed by him. But then there was the majority. There was a, a lot of them that just made it about themselves. And God can't bless that. God is not going to bless the flesh. He's not going to glory in your flesh. He's, he's going he's to bless the person whose life is about him. And the church, who's made their primary focus his son, that is who he is going to bless. And so tonight I would say we are, we are blessed people, amen? amen? We are blessed people. Okay, let's stand. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement in this parable. Thank you for being our God, such a loving, gracious, merciful, kind, patient, 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 patient God. Thank you for looking at us today as, as you would just the nation of Israel, as your own. Thank you for entrusting us with this amazing privilege, grafting us in desiring to produce spiritual life and spiritual fruit through our lives now as the church. As we close out our time, maybe there's people here, or maybe even online that have never come to you and given their life to you, Father. We would ask that even right now they would do that. And if that's you, just the Bible talks about our need to confess to God, to agree with God is the idea. One of the, the ways we start, if we're going to allow him to save us and make us his own, is to agree with his assessment of who we are apart from him. 
And the Bible says, God's word says, he says in his word that we are sinners and that our sin separates us from him. So confess that to God. Say, God, I'm a, I'm a sinner. And he also says very clearly that if we confess our sin to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you need to be forgiven. God needs to remove that sin from your life. So ask him to forgive you of your sin. And as it relates to salvation, he's not going to force this on you. It's a free gift. For by grace we are saved through faith. Faith in Jesus. If you would like God to save you right now, would you just ask him to? Say, Father, save me. I receive your son. Just invite Jesus into your life. I receive your son Jesus into my life to be my Savior, to be my Lord. Ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit right now. And the rest of us, let's do that as well. Lord, fill us all, those that have just possibly received you, along with all of us that already have. Would you fill us with your Spirit right now? We long for more of you. And may May we walk in the center of your will. And may you produce Nabal, life from that, to the benefit of others, not just ourselves. We pray this, and we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. and amen. Well, God bless you guys. Have a wonderful night.